Hi, my name is Veronica and I'm an inspiring lawyer and I decided to create this podcast in order to hear and learn success stories of people who have managed to overcome different hurdles and accomplish in their lives. So honestly, the main purpose of the podcast is simply to motivate and inspire people not to be afraid of starting from the scratch, facing various problems and following their main goals. Because I genuinely believe that by learning the stories of others, you may learn more about yourself. So my today's guest is Rashida Benamar, who is an absolute role model for me, a career expert featured in Forbes, Yahoo Finance, NatWest Business Hub, and the Huffington Post, and also a successful businesswoman who launched her stationery brand in London, Rama Publishing. So thank you so much, Rashida, for coming. I'm very grateful for having me in my podcast. Thank you so much for this beautiful introduction. <laughs> Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for asking me to come. I'm very excited about this chat. Thank you so much. So while I was preparing for the podcast, I realized that the list of your accomplishments was literally endless. And I was amazed by how much effort you put into building your career. And I know that you were invited in Forbes and you contributed to the article called How to Write a To-Do List you will actually stick to. And I've read it honestly, and genuinely, I've reaped uh, huge benefits from it. So it was really interesting. And I would like to talk with you about it because it's a very speaking brand. And I think that someday, like one day, anybody wants to relate to this speaking brand, especially the younger generation. And how was it to work with Forbes? And did this experience meet your expectations ultimately? Thank you very much for your question. So a journalist at Forbes approached me mm -hmm. because I'm a career coach and I've done a lot of work. As you said, I started my business. So they are wondering how I managed to juggle all of my daily tasks. And actually, a lot of people talk about productivity. But at the end of the day, it's a mindset also. It's knowing when to stop because otherwise it can get very overwhelming. So I wrote that article and it's basically very simple tips but I've noticed that people overlook simple tips. People love to have a quick fix. Even I see it sometimes with some of my clients. They meet me for the first time and they want me to sort out their entire life <laughs> issues. But no, actually, the little steps that you overlook is what gets you where you want to be. So, for instance, I see people writing their to-do list and it's never ending. It's like hundreds, hundreds things to do a day. It's not humanly possible. Even if you have two, three kids, even if you have a job, it's not humanly possible to tackle this list. It's very important to remember the rule of three. It's not me who created that. Many philosopher, many researcher is telling you that your brain can only focus on three big points. For example, if you attend a talk, same with your productivity list. Three tasks a day. If you manage to accomplish that, you should reward yourself. So I stick to that. Of course, I'm not talking about your chores. You know, you have to do some admin tasks, but I'm talking about the three goals that get you closer to your main goal. So for instance, you're a law student. If you are aspiring to be a lawyer, I'm guessing you're trying to apply for some of your masters or if you want to do a training contract, then one of the goals per day should be drafting a personal statement, you know? So it's all about prioritizing and yes, it's absolutely about prioritizing. It's about discriminating against some tasks. So for instance, you need to realize, okay, I can't do it all. So what are the top three that I should be doing? And if I don't do the rest, at least I've done the main bulk. So 
if you want to apply for a job, then tell yourself, today I'm writing my cover letter. That's one of my tasks. It's a non-negotiable. Second task, okay, I've secured an interview. I need to prepare at least researching the firm. Boom. Second task, right? I guarantee you, if you do already those two tasks, it would take you a good chunk of your day. And prioritizing help you focusing on what you need to do. And then you have a direction. There is an amazing book, actually. Uh, it's called Eat the Frog. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the author. I think, I'm not sure if it's Brian Tracy, but I'm sure you can find out and tell your followers or your listener. It's Eat the Frog. What it means is focus on the task that you don't want to do first. Because it's usually the one that we procrastinate all the time, but it floats in your head. So you're going for the comfort of not doing it first, but it's actually you're lying to yourself because that task is running around your head, giving you a lot of grief. It takes a lot of energy in your head. Do it first. Get it out of the way. I think that it's so important that we're talking about such things as determination and flexibility because it's really important in nowadays world to acquire such essential skills. And what I noticed is that in your articles, you write a lot about this phenomenon called the sunk cost fallacy. Mm -hmm. As I realize, it's when you put so much effort into something, for example, into getting your law degree, and then you realize that you're not into it anymore and it's not your passion anymore, but you're very afraid of changing it because you have already spent so much money, so much time on it, and you continue doing it. And uh, it's so devastating, to be honestly. So what do you think, how to overcome this so-called, the sunk cost fallacy phenomenon and how to change your life for the better? Thank you very much for this question. I think it's a very important question because I have experienced this. I actually wrote something about sunk cost fallacy because I was myself stuck. So a little bit about myself. Before I started Rama Publishing, I studied law in France. I studied law in London. I did my LLB in London, then went on to do my LLM and then worked at various law firms in London. So needless to say, I invested a lot in the legal world, right? A lot of money, a lot of tears, a lot of blood, especially for an English native, a non-English native speaker. I absolutely spent hours studying hours having a part-time job, running around London, managing everything at the same time. So when I first started working at law firm and I realized, oh my God, this is not for me. I literally felt my soul becoming smaller and smaller by the day. Then after a year, I felt it becoming smaller and smaller by the second. Mm. And the funny thing is, If you don't have the courage to jump ship or to do something else with your life, your body will tell you. And you don't want to wait that level. Because absolutely, the burnout I had, I developed eczema all around my eyes, all around my elbows. I never had any skin issues in my entire existence. So I went to the doctor and I explained a little bit my situation. He was like, you're overwhelmed, you're very stressed and your body is reacting. I sat and I, I was like, what am I doing with my life? I spent so much time. There is no way I'm going to quit. I need to do it. And then I, life is amazing like this. And it's not, it's exactly what happened. I turned my head 
And there was this book, you know, I buy a lot of books. You have always a pile of books. And I, I haven't read it and I opened it. And there was this paragraph on the sunk cost fallacy. So it's economics, right? I didn't study economics. I was like, what is that? And it was actually a term applied to everyday life. When you spend so much time, as you explained very well, effort, sweat, tears, money, it's almost impossible to have the courage to change. And it says that if you can overcome this, you can actually achieve whatever you want. So I was like, I need to change. Something has to change in my life. So I started very slow. This is the thing I want your listener to hear. You don't have to have a great immediate change. You can start with incremental change, little steps, little by little, trying to craft some experiment outside the legal world. So I was like, what am I interested in? Okay, I would love to start my business. So I start reading business I start going to networking events about women starting their own business. I start changing my network, right? So I start having friends that own a small brand, small businesses. So I start feeling a bit more comfortable, confident. And then life happened. I moved to Melbourne. And there is a power in moving away from your circle. You have a newfound confidence and you just go for it. So one of my tips would be, to stop listening to your friends and family member. Why? Because they're risk averse. They don't want you to change. They don't want you to do anything else. So the worst people that can advise you are people that are the closest to you. So when you know in your heart that this time is over and you want to try something new, keep your secret and keep your dream for yourself at least for the initial stage. Don't share the dreams to the non-dreamer. So because they will stop you. I didn't share it to anybody. I just did my little plot behind the scene. And then when I was comfortable enough, I was like, okay, actually, I can do that. I increased my income. So I had several income streams by this stage. Law firm was paying me, but I was getting some money doing some translation, copywriting. I was like looking, what can I sell in my flat? Like trying to get my money ready. And then I said, okay, I'm going to jump. I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to start my own brand. I retrain as a coach, so I used the money that I saved during my time at various law firms, and I paid my course in Melbourne to become a coach, and that's how we started. And you have to have this in mind, that it's very important that I tell people, it does cost money to retrain. So don't be deluded. Don't listen to people that tell you, oh, you can just retrain, change your career path. It costs a lot of money. So you have to prepare your money, your savings, and then you go for it, okay? And also, I had a husband. So I think it's essential that people share their privilege because otherwise it make people feel bad about themselves. Like, why have I not done this? Why have I not done it sooner? Maybe you don't have the support I got yeah. around you. So be kind to yourself, but don't find excuses. Fair enough, you don't have maybe all the opportunities or the network, but there are little action that you can take today. Yeah. And you know, sometimes I think that people want everything for free. Yes. But it's impossible. Because if you want something that is really worthful, you should be ready to pay for this. Absolutely. My training was a lot of money. And you see a lot of people starting becoming coach out of nowhere. But this is a disaster. How are you going to support and create a safe environment for your client if you do not have the training, if you do not have done the safeguarding? you know, a course that goes with it to see if the person actually needs therapy. There are a lot of things that goes on when you're coaching someone about their issues at work or their life. It's, I think, very dangerous when you see those new coaches that appear out of nowhere 
without any qualification. And they are like, just because they have a big following on Instagram, they think they can help you in your career or in your life. Always check if they are qualified, if they've done a course, if they are safe to coach you. As you said, training costs money. So if you want to change your career path, start working on your saving pots and trying to find ways how to can generate income. You mentioned your husband. I think it's so cool and it's so valuable when you have somebody that really supports you. And I remember you once told me that the most powerful thing in life is people that surround you mm. in this particular moment. And if you need a motivation or help, just look around and the right people will be there for you. So let's talk about two very important keys to success, which many people tend to neglect, unfortunately, which are mentoring and networking. So have you ever had a role model in your life and where to find an appropriate mentor and meaningful networking? That's a beautiful question. Thank you, Veronica, because it's really one of the key to success, mentoring and your network. It's cheesy to say your network is your net worth, but it's so true. I have come to realize it's absolutely spot on. So mentoring, it's a big passion of mine. I mentor a lot of people and I've been mentored myself. The thing is, I want to tell people, mentoring is not something like you're not going to find Oprah Winfrey to mentor you. People have this idea that it has to be this top barrister or this top judge or top lawyer to mentor you. Your friend could be a mentor. If they are like on the third, let's say your second year law student and she's on the third year, a teacher could be your mentor if you ask for help. It's anyone around that has more knowledge in that field than you. They don't have to be an expert in the field. They can have some wisdom about them. They have the caring soul and empathy to help you. And they are in the field you want to join. So if you are in law and you want to become a lawyer, then find someone in this world. Doesn't even have to be a lawyer. It could be a paralegal that is doing what you want to do and will mentor you. How do you get a mentor? Please remember, people are people. You have to make them feel valued. You can't expect to take something from someone and not get something back. So I'm not telling you to give something back because actually the mentor gets a lot from the mentee. It's such a beautiful relationship. But if you want to keep your mentor, send a thank you email. It doesn't cost a lot, right? If they spend one hour with you or 30 minutes with you, just send a nice thank you email for your time. Make it easy for them to say yes. So for instance, now you have, guys, you're so lucky. You have LinkedIn, social media. It's so easy. During my time, it was almost non-existent. Okay, I exaggerate, but not as much as now. From a click, you can find someone on LinkedIn. Make it easy for them to say yes. Don't say, hey, my name is Rashida. Please help me sort out my life. No one's going to answer that. It's too overwhelming. You have to make it specific. So you have to say, hi, my name is Rashida. I'm looking for a mentor. I'm a third year law student. And I would love to take 30 minutes of your time so you can tell me what it entails to be a lawyer on a day-to-day -day basis. And the coffee will be on me or something like that. I guarantee you, you'll find someone who will say yes. Maybe not the first person, maybe not the second person. So you need to take rejection for breakfast, eat it and move on. It's not personal. People don't respond because they're busy. They haven't seen it. It's nothing to do with you. So move on to the next person. And that's how you get mentor. You have to be proactive. Find them. Go and ask them. Be nice. Go to networking event. And please, when you go to networking event, 
when you're talking to someone, do not look over your shoulder to see who is the most important person in the room. The most important person in the room <laughs> is the person you're talking to. I repeat, the most important person in the room is the person you're talking to. You have no idea the secretary can find you your dream job. They are the closest to the partner. I've seen with my own eyes a partner crying tears when his secretary was ill for two weeks. He didn't know what to do without her. So don't be, you know, classist and saying, oh, I need to talk to the partner. I don't want to talk to the secretary. The secretary is the one who's going to unlock, you know, your career and be nice to everybody. The way you treat people on your way up is the way you will see when you go down. What's the expression? You know what it means. Yeah. You know what it means. You know, it's very popular quote also. Treat people as you want to be treated as well. Yes. And it comes back to you. All, every time I was rude, it came back to bite me. The legal world is very small. Absolutely. So, like, there's no point. Like you this. can't escape. Yeah, it works like this. Absolutely. And people always feel that you're not genuine with them. Mm -hmm. So it's very, as you've said, it's very important to be consistent and to be genuine with people and to be good to yes. people. Be authentic with your mentor as a human being. So have a genuine conversation. Find a mentor that you click with. So for example, you go to a networking event and you had this amazing woman that you talked to and you clicked, you liked, I don't know, fashion. It doesn't have to be law-related. Makeup, fashion could be a book you're interested in or a museum you visited or exhibition. And then you have something in common. Like just engage like you would engage a normal human being. The student that have always that mindset of taking, 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 and just having a very fixed mindset onto who they need to talk to in the room, they not do well in networking. And I don't think even if they find a mentor, they will manage to keep him for her. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. You wouldn't want someone to come talk to you just to take something from you. You want at least a genuine you should interest to give. Absolutely. Yeah. You ask questions, ask genuine questions. Ask them what they're doing. People love to give out themselves. Yeah. So you will find that it's very easy to, to get a mentor in law. Trust me. <laughs> so as we're now living in the world where everything is online, mm -hmm. many people tend to promote themselves in social media, like Instagram, for example, which I think is absolutely fun. And I do think that it's quite wise when you keep up to date and when you keep up with the latest trends in order to accomplish something in your life. But I think that it's really important, especially for lawyers, to be careful about advertising themselves in the correct way in order not to spoil their reputation. So what do you think is the right way for aspiring lawyers to manage their social media, such as Instagram or Facebook, for example? And what things should lawyers avoid sharing in social networks? That's a very good question. Actually, your personal branding these days is essential. We still require you to write application form and CV and cover letter. But believe me, before they even look at your CV and your application, they will Google you. So I think it's a super good tip to remind yourself of, to Google yourself. Everyone should Google themselves to see what comes up. So Google Rashida Benamar to see what comes up because you might have written something crazy on Twitter 10 years ago or six years ago that you completely forgot about. It's essential before application season that you clean your social presence. Go back to all your tweets, even if it's from 2008, 2006, and delete the controversial stuff that you've been sharing when you were 18 or 19, right? You, you, your brain was not even formed. So I think it's a very good tip. Also, if I were a law student, okay, 
I will focus on LinkedIn and maybe Instagram and Twitter. Twitter, the legal Twitter is very, very powerful because a lot of opportunities are shared there. You can interact, you can network with top lawyers, with judges, paralegal, law students, and there is a huge support network in there. So it's very important to understand though that Twitter could be a dark place if you don't know how to use it. So if your mental health is quite fragile, I will stay away from Twitter because it could be very negative, you know, like the news, it's bombarded, you have trolls. So know yourself. If you know that you get overwhelmed with social media and you don't have to be everywhere, at least LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, make sure that you're up to date, write your year. For example, if you're a third year law student, write your name, reshare article that show interest into the area you want to go in. So if you're interested in human rights, reshare human rights lawyer articles, something that you're interested in, so you can show your passion and it shows like you're interested in human rights, family. Because when you apply for a job, the first question they will ask you is why are you interested in applying, you know, in human rights law firm? Then they can see that you are actually interested because you've been talking about it for several months, several years, reshared, interacted. Then you can like, you know, um, a tweet from someone, retweet. If you don't feel confident in tweeting, you don't have to tweet. Just reshare interesting articles. Stay away from obviously swearing. Do not follow my footstep because <laughs> I do swear. <laughs> really, uh, do not swear. Do not say anything controversial that can bite you. At For the example, latest political stuff. Stay away from politics mm-hmm. unless you want to be a politician. Mm-hmm. I hate giving this advice because I'm honestly a huge believer in fighting for what you believe in. But law students are in a tricky position because it's extremely competitive and you don't know what firm political views are, right? So if you're applying for a law firm and they see something you've written about, I don't know, Brexit or something they might not like, you might miss out on opportunities. So be smart, get into the job, then tweet. <laughs> but before... Try to stay neutral, okay? There are millions of topics you can talk about. Or you can, you know, reshare non-controversial article if you want just before application season. That's what I would say to a student as a strategy. I'm not saying don't share your voice. It's just be smart with it. Once you get the job, once you're in, once you sign your contract, then you can, you know, follow your passion and your path. Human rights students are different because they're passionate about politics and they're passionate about, you know, for example, I don't know, rights for minorities or racism or important topic that is really touch their soul. But just wait before, you know, applying because I know the behind the scenes and they do Google you. It's quite sad, but that's the truth. If you want the job, then you have to try to be neutral on your platform and Afterwards, you can develop your passions through your blog and through your Twitter. But again, if you decide to be an employee of a firm, they will have a say on what you share because you are representing them. That's why I don't work for anybody. And I know that we are all judged nowadays by our appearance. And I think that is fair enough, especially when you're pursuing this legal career and your client, for example, possible client would like to see you in social media to check you. And do you think it's important for the inspiring lawyer, for the lawyer, to have this elegant, classical outlook on Instagram, to have this style in order to 
you know, to have the right perception. To be honest, actually, this is a very uh, important question. And my point of view is, I find it grotesque that law firm will hire people based on their appearance. For me, if I own a law firm, you could come with red hair, yellow hair, shaved, whatever. I don't care. Are you nice with people? Are you empathetic? Are you smart? Do you have the technical skill to do the job? That's what matters to me. But that's Rashida's world. The reality is different and it's delusional to think otherwise. That's why the bar and, you know, the legal world has a long way to go in terms of, you know, equality and all of this because they still do judge you based on your appearance. They do. They like to say otherwise on Twitter, but they do. So then you do whatever you want with that information. Because some people cannot change how they look like. They are passionate about certain style. And, you know, I think it's tragic that people will have to conform. Again, that's why I left the legal world, because I contain multitudes and I couldn't fit in a specific box. And I still strongly believe that the legal world is still very rigid. So, Veronica, you have a point when you say they will look at your profile, they will look at how you present yourself, they will look at your hair, they will look at your blazer, they will look at your shoes. So, you're right. Yes, they will judge you based on your appearance, sadly. So, you do whatever you want with that information. But I was expecting it. <laughs> yes. Yes, they, they will. So, you see, it's again strategizing your career once you get in. Then it depends if your soul and your value can allow that. Because some people can't compromise their value just to get a job. I'm one of those. contradicts their values. Yes. And their perception. Yes. Yeah. So now I would like to highlight a very sensitive topic Mm -hmm. concerning perception of women in legal sphere. And it's not a secret that female lawyers face widespread gender bias. And I'm not only talking about less pay and fewer promotion. What I mean is the fact that female lawyers are more likely than their male colleagues, for example, to be interrupted, to be mistaken for non-lawyers, to do more office housework, and to have less access to prime job assignments. So my question is, what do you think can be done to deal with this discrimination of women in law? I absolutely 100% agree with what you just said. I've lost count of how many times my friends, qualified lawyer for years, senior associate, will still be confused by the the cleaner or go buy me coffee and tea to a senior partner. I'm like, we have the same position. You want your coffee? Go get it yourself. But the thing is, I truly believe, and this is just my humble opinion, that things will only change if people start speaking out and they have to speak out in group and in solidarity. The problem is, if you're the only one complaining, you would just be seen as the troublemaker and you're going to get fired or get, you know, they'll find a way to, to get rid of you. It's essential that women stick together and not the, the BS. I'm not going to swear on this podcast, but not the BS of women supporting women, but in reality is women stabbing women. I'm talking real solidarity. You have more in common to your fellow woman than the partner male laughing at her. And making jokes because sometimes when you have the desire to fit in, people enter banter against their own fellow colleagues. And I'm like, why? You you have to be uh, together against this discrimination. And your statistics don't even include black women in the mix. They are on the bottom 
of the ladder, how they perceived in the legal world. As I said, the legal world has a long way to go. If you see the top of the chambers, just a quick Google search to see how many male whites are at the top. And I know that only the 3% of black women are elected to the barristers. And like so, judges also, how many judges, judges as well? You yeah. see, how many judges? And it's such a tragedy because multiculturalism, variety of people, diversity, enrich the legal system. It's our society and it's not reflecting it. The legal system as it is, is not reflecting a beautiful society with people coming from different countries. I remember when I wanted to become a barrister, I was doing my master. My supervisor told me, Rashida, with your French accent, I wouldn't advise you. You have such a thick French accent. It would be very hard for you to get there. And I was like, at the time, to these days, my biggest regret that I didn't say, you know what? Bore off. What are you talking about? You know, because of my accent, I cannot be a barrister. But I did believe him. And it stays with him. So my advice is, women, get in there. Be unapologetic. Stop saying sorry a hundred times. Unless you push someone through the stairs and they fell off and they died. Don't say sorry. Why are you sorry for? In fact, research shows that the more you say sorry, the less you're taking seriously. Don't be apologetic. That will be number one. Stick together, have your squad, and fight for your rights together. Remember also that if you don't ask, you don't get. But again, that's a huge myth saying that women do not ask for pay rises and ask for their rights. They do ask, they just don't get it. So ask louder. Don't be scared to be loud. Go for it because nothing is handed in to you. If you want your rights, you have to fight for it. And as I said, we have a long way to go in the legal world. It's getting a little bit better, maybe person, a little tiny percentage. But God, the discrimination behind those big, beautiful buildings is shocking. That should be another episode just in itself. <laughs> okay. So I think that nowadays everyone is literally obsessed with being super productive every minute, every moment of your life. Practically, and I think that every purposeful person struggles with striking this work and life balance. And the thing is, when you give yourself a break, you start blaming yourself for procrastination. So how to distinguish the real procrastination from an essential rest and how to establish this balance between work and leisure time? That's a very good question, Veronica. That's what I said about productivity, okay? It became such a buzzword that is actually taking away from our lives. At the end of the day, the brain is not built to focus on something more than 25 minutes or 20 minutes. I think there was an amazing research on it. Like a neurosurgeon said, it's completely delusional to think that you can focus on something for hours. It's not happening. Look at yourself anyway, right? You're studying for an exam. You're going to probably focus 10 minutes and then your head's going to start to wander. You're going to watch the window, the birds, probably open another article that are completely unrelated to your study. It's your brain talking to you saying, Veronica, I need a break. Please, I need a break. So this is what procrastination is. Procrastination is an amazing compass that shows you something. It's, procrastination is telling you something. Either you're too 
tired, have a break, go for a walk, or I'm very scared of this task. And that's why I keep pushing it. Ask yourself why you keep procrastinating some tasks. Either you have no link towards them and you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Maybe it's someone else's dream, someone else's goals, or you're terrified because you do not have the skills to do it. You have to, should be some intrigue in there. You should have to do some research and self-reflection. For example, my tax, right? If I keep procrastinating, why am I procrastinating it? Because I'm scared to pay this amount of money. I don't know how to do it very well. I'm scared to make mistakes. So tackle those problems. Procrastination is telling you you're scared of something. What is it? So it's like, okay, actually, I pay taxes, but it helps the society I live in, helps NHS, helps that. Talk to yourself, pep talk yourself. I don't believe you should be productive all the time. I think you need time for daydreaming because when you daydream, is when your brain assimilate knowledge. So if you're a student and you stopped showering, stop cooking, stop having nap because you feel you don't have time, it's you're going straight to burnout. Your neuron is going to fry. You're not going to be doing well during the exam. So it's essential you remind yourself, I'm a human being. I need break. My brain needs to breathe. I think the best thing I would say is work for 25 minutes, 30 minutes. I think it's, they call it the Pomodoro technique, but it's not, forget this technique. It's literally your body is going to tell you your time. Some people can stay 30 minutes focusing and then they need to make a cup of tea or go for a walk and then come back to it. But don't burn yourself to the ground because there is no career, no business, no study, no exam if your body is out, if you're ill. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that when you are overwhelmed with your studies or work, whatever, it's very super important to stick to your ordinary lifestyle mm-hmm. in order to be okay and in order not to develop some mental disorders. But you know, like, absolutely, you, you're going to burn out. Yeah. It, it's real. And burnout, again, a buzzword that everybody uses. You can literally hear your brain frying you forget things you not focused you can cry easily those are signs of burnout if you start crying for anything like your toast are not toasted properly and you start crying that's a sign of burnout that's when you're already far gone so you have to look after yourself because this is the real success if you're healthy then you can achieve anything so give yourself some break and if you're a student please take the time to enjoy your student life You're meant to make mistakes. You're meant to go out with your friends. That's how you network. In fact, you mentioned a question on networking earlier in the podcast. But something I would like to add is your network is your friends. I had amazing opportunity at the Diana Award, for example. I'm a mentor there and was my friend from uni who found me this opportunity. So networking is with your friend, but how are you going to network if every time they're organizing a party or inviting you for a coffee, you say, no, sorry, I need to study. Marks are important, but trust me, these days, it's not enough. You need to have a life next to your marks and starts with going out with your friend. You never know who you're going to meet. And so true, really. In 2019, the outbreak of coronavirus occurred. And undeniably, since that time, all spheres of people's lives have experienced significant changes. So what do you think how coronavirus impacted the sphere of law and what lawyers should learn from this experience? I was absolutely heartbroken for students because overnight they lost their friends, right? They completely isolated, 
having three lockdowns in London, at least, you know, I don't know any other country, but I was in London and seeing students basically having to do exams through computers and being isolated. Honestly believe that we have no idea the mental health crisis that is going to unfold from this. We haven't seen the head yet. And I thought, wow, during my time when I was studying, I had my friends, we had squad, we had study groups. I could learn 20 cases, the other learned 20 cases and we exchange our notes. We would go to event together. We go to exam. We had access to a professor, was one-on-one, you know, university lessons. Now it's all on Zoom. And I honestly believe the Zoom fatigue is a disaster, right? Looking at your screen is not the same. Like now we're sitting in the same room. I can feel your energy. You can feel mine. Zoom can never replace that. So I think, but there is a positive that came out. And I think this is amazing. And I think it's a shame if people, law firm especially, don't continue to do that. There was more access to disabled students, right? That they could access big conferences thanks to technology. And I read an article recently that big conferences stopped doing that, giving access. Why? Why you stop? This is the thing that annoys me. Coronavirus was a huge human crisis, but there was silver lining if we were willing to learn and change the way we work. For example, why can we not keep the hybrid working system? For example, you are a mother or father working at a law firm. Why can you not work three days a week at home? Many law firms now don't allow you to do that. They pretend they do, but they don't really. You know, they make you come to the office. I think every crisis comes with learning and teaching. And if you can extract the juice of it, can make it such a powerful change. I think we should keep the the technology side of things with a balance, right? You can come two days in the office so you can get, you know, some interaction with your colleagues. But if it makes your life much easier, you can cook, you can have a healthier lifestyle, you can go for your walk, you don't have to take the transport in central London. So I think law firms should stick to the progress and not revert back to the old ways of extreme rigidity. In fact, I'm coaching as coaching a law firm and you can tell that they're still struggling with new modern ways of doing things. Like they don't allow, for example, their staff to work from home. They don't allow them. Even during a strike, they will ask them to come. So you see what I mean? It's like law firm, for some reason, they're still extremely rigid and you don't see what you see in other sector where they really embraced for example, Google, like, come on, you can work every day of the week. Mm-hmm. You can go, you can move another country and still work for English yeah. company, you know? So in the very flexible. Yes. So they need more flexibility. So now there is a rubric called short questions and short answers. Mm-hmm. So I will ask you several questions. Exciting. And you will give me some precise answers. Okay. So let's get started. Three main qualities of a successful lawyer. Empathy, team, player, intelligence. The most valuable advice you've ever received. Don't share your dream to the non-dreamers. The most useless advice you've ever received. Stay in a job long enough so it doesn't look bad on your CV. Terrible advice. (laughs) One, a go-to book for every lawyer. Ooh, I really love The Secret Barrister, obviously. But if you don't want to read something related to law, I really love crafting experiment Ibarra. It's, she teaches you how to create a life you want. And last but not the least one, 
if you could implement one law that will be obligatory for everybody on the planet, what it would be? This is a very deep question. I would say just be kind to people, but not in the cheesy way of the sense. Like just treat people with the humanity they deserve. Okay. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to spend this special time with you. It was absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Veronica. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.